to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick while giving my commentary on it. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Philip K. Dick's 1959 novel, Time Out of Joint. This is really one of Dick's great early novels, and it's part of a series of novels that Dick wrote in the late 1950s, exploring the shifting realities in the world. And I think these efforts really culminate in The Man in the High Castle. And then he starts to move to different themes in the 1960s. Now, the first of these novels to really look at shifting realities was The Cosmic Puppets. And there, the shifting realities were the result of cosmic forces and divine struggle and kind of biblical conflicts. Now, the second novel that looks at this theme was Eye in the Sky. And this one is based really on individual subjectivities about reality and really the idea that we all look at the world in slightly different ways. And we're all kind of out of sync with each other's based on our own individual perspectives on things. In Time Out of Joint, though, this theme is explored in a much more politically relevant way. We really find in this story humans consciously creating a false reality. It's a straight-up conspiracy. It's very much uh, for the needs of state power. And now, these are things that aren't really clear early in the story, though. We, we really don't know what's going on. In fact, Dick kind of gives us a lot of false trails early in the story where we, we start to think that maybe our character is going mad or maybe there's a psychological or philosophical explanation for what's going on. In the end, is actually like a straight up uh, conspiracy of those of people in power to achieve some very clear political end. What that end is, isn't really even, isn't even revealed until the last two chapters of the novel to the last, uh, you know, 20, 30 pages. But all this is really getting ahead of myself. The plot of time out of joints is one of, at least among his early novels, one of the more well-constructed, stories. In a lot of his early novels, he kind of gives you away kind of the theme early on. Here, the theme creeps up on you over time, and it's very unified, I think, in a lot of ways, compared to even some of his later novels. Like, what he starts to do in the 1960s is throw a lot of ideas out there. This novel is much more well-developed. It's got clues that kind of point you in the right direction, and Things are revealed bit by bit to the characters and to to you, and that makes it very satisfying, I think, at the end. And each realization that the characters get is really earned and struggled with by our main characters, and it gives it really something very fulfilling. Now, our main character is a man named Ragel Gum, and he's a single man living a very curious life as a constant and persistent winner of an odd newspaper contest called Where Will the Little Man, Where Will the Little Green Man Be Next? And basically, it's a grid, and his job each day is to determine where, where it will appear, right? It's kind of like a guessing game almost, but he thinks there's a pattern to it, and in fact, there must be a pattern because he continues to win, and he's got to figure out how to do it. And then he's supposed to like figure out the time and the place in this grid. 
Now, he's not the only, he, he's living with his sister, Margot, and his brother-in-law, Vic. And then they have a child, Sammy. And these characters are kind of in this ideal 1950s suburban world. Now, these characters, the Nielsen family, Vic and Margot and, and Sammy, are also affected by the strange things happening to Raglegum. There are also other important characters, most significantly Bill and Junie Black, who are neighbors. Now, in the first few chapters of this novel, we are introduced to these characters. Vic works in a grocery store. Margot is a housewife, and Ragel spends most of his day preparing each day's entry into the newspaper contest. He is a local celebrity and the target of curiosity because he's one of the few men in town who does not work. And so from very early in the story, you get this sense that Ragel is the center of attention in this town. And this is something Ragel Gum is also very aware of and increasingly bothered by and, and concerned about. We learn that there's strange things about this world that tell us pretty much from the first page of the story that this world does not match our own. For instance, the first real clear clue that I, I see is that Uncle Tom's Cabin is in this world recently published. It's, it's presented as historical fiction and it's been recently published. In, fa in fact, that was a novel published in, I think it was in the early 1850s. And here it's almost a century later it gets it's published. And the reason why is the people who construct this false reality are just borrowing data points from their own world and they just throw them in. And sometimes they don't put certain things in, like Marilyn Monroe, for instance, isn't in there. And there's other small things, radios, for instance. Now there's a good reason radios aren't allowed really or aren't encouraged in Radical Gum's world, but that's an example of something that's very common in our 1950s, our what we remember of it, but in Radical Gum's world they don't exist so it's if you're paying attention it's clear that something is really off about this world now one night uh the blacks visit for dinner now bill black is a very awkward man who seems to never quite fit into his clothing he's constantly critical of 1950s popular culture yet he's very prone to accepting popular trends with a very awkward kind of enthusiasm such as his hatred of the television set he works for the water department, so he has a very cliche government job. Now, that night while they're playing poker, Vic has a strange thing happen to him, and that is he reaches for the light cord and he finds no cord there. And In fact, his bathroom has a light switch, a wall switch. He seems to remember a pull-down cord, though. Now, the next day, Ragel is visited by someone from the newspaper who helps him revise his previous submissions. His name is Mr. Lowry. Now, he has a special deal with the newspaper, allowing him to guess six times and rank his guesses each day. This allows him to keep winning. And in his mind, this is because his continued victory is something that's good for the newspaper. It helps build attention to the contest. Um, now, he has to do this every day. Of course, the contest is daily if he wants to stay in it. But he more or less blows off work this day and goes to visit Junie Black, whom he flirts with and even tries to seduce her while taking her to the pool to sunbathe. Failing that though, he goes to a soda stand, but while he's there, the soda stand disappears, leaving behind only a strip of paper. And this is not the first time that something like this has happened to him. So later, Sammy Nielsen finds some small strips of paper identical to the ones that Ragel Gum has already found in a junkyard. Now Ragel's beginning to think he's having a nervous break, breakdown because this has happened to him several times where device, items, uh, have just kind of dissolved in front of him, leaving only behind these little she sheets of paper that supposedly identify what they are. He starts to study the philosophy of semi semiotics, try to understand 
what's going on here. But he thinks he's just going to have a nervous breakdown and therefore he thinks he should quit the contest altogether. He talks about this with Vic and then Sammy arrives with these pieces of papers and suddenly what Raggle thought was just simply a psychological problem of his own becomes a mystery that he should solve. So Raggle and Vic go to the dump and find old magazines and phone books. They bring them back to the house to study. Now the phone books right away have extensions and locations and numbers that make no sense to what they're used to. They try to call them but the operator just gives them the runaround. Now, the magazines, though, more interestingly, talk about a woman named Marilyn Monroe. Now, none of the Nielsens have heard of this woman, although she's presented as a very famous celebrity. Now, meanwhile, Bill Black, who has gotten a report that these phone calls were made, and it turns out Bill Black is somehow involved in this conspiracy that's shaping Ragel Gum's life, he goes to talk to Mr. Lowry, the man we met before as the one who runs the newspaper contest. And he basically wonders, why, how did it happen that these numbers were called from Ragel Gum's or the Nielsen's phone? And there's ideas here that maybe, you know, maybe someone left, a, you know, these numbers around or something, and maybe they just picked them up and tried to call them. But anyways, he, he thinks there's something up and he worries that maybe Ragel Gum is going insane. Uh, and that's interesting because Ragel thinks he's going insane, but Bill Black worries that Ragel is going insane or returning to sanity. So Bill goes to visit Ragel to find out for himself. He tries to cover up for what they discovered by first saying that, first by taking the phone book and saying, I need it. And then also letting them know that Marilyn Monroe is a real actress. So he basically then at that point puts Marilyn Monroe into their existence as a real actress. Now that same night, a woman named Mrs. Keitelbein arrives to promote civil defense and recruits Gregel Gum into the program. And I think one thing I didn't mention last week, because I, I think I forgot about it or, or didn't notice it in the reread, was that Ragel Gum agrees to join the civil defense basically because Junie, Blank, Junie Black recommended him. And he thinks this will be a chance basically to get a get some time with Junie Black when her husband isn't looking. So he's more interested in the connection to Junie Black than he is actually participating in, in, in civil defense. So anyway, Sammy, meanwhile, is working on a crystal radio. And this is an interesting subplot because there's basically no radios in Ragel Gump's world, or very few. Now, Ragel, because he was in the army, knows about radios and encourages Sammy to make them and develop them. And he's making progress on that. And he starts to say things like we're wor he's worried that there's outside forces spying on them. And it seems there's some connection between his discovery that this is happening and the radio set he's working on. Now, Bill Black goes to see Lowry again and say, really, they're in big trouble here because Ragel's actually figuring stuff out. Bill fears that he's becoming sane again. And he thinks if Ragel had looked up his own name, he would have found an entry for a separate business address, which would have made no sense to them at all and, you know, been really a wild discovery. Now, later, Sammy's still working on his radio set and he starts to hear these strange conversations going on. He can't make much sense of them, but there are people talking and a lot of it's in military lingo. Ragel, meanwhile, submits his contest for the day and stops by to visit Mrs. Keitelbein, trying to find out who else is involved in the civil defense. Again, he's trying to you know, find out if Junie Black is going to be involved in this because he wants to see her more. Meanwhile, Vic does a psychological experiment at work that seems to suggest that all the people in his grocery store have the same training or maybe it's programming. 
And on the way home, on the bus, Vic tries to look beyond the world and successfully causes the bus to become translucent. And what she sees is that while there's a bus driver, everyone else, all the other people in the town, or all the other people on the bus are essentially scarecrows or, or stick figures underneath some uh, kind of simulation. And so he's able to, just by concentrating and focusing his thoughts, he's able to kind of see through into the real reality underneath the surface. And so that gets us to what happened in the first six chapters of Time on a Joint. So now let's let's move on and go a little bit deeper into the story and give a little bit more details about the next three chapters. Chapters would be seven through nine is what I'll be looking at today. So anyways, Vic has this weird experience that he sort of created on the bus. And then he goes home and he wants to, of course, probably talk to Regal about this. But he goes home and he finds the house completely empty. So he goes through he can't find anyone so he goes to his son's clubhouse and he finds everyone else margo and Regal, are in the clubhouse and his brother-in-law is there and they're all listening to the radio together and Regal, who was in the military does a much better job than anyone else in interpreting the messages and especially because i think like sammy thinks they're all code and he says no it's not code this is just military lingo and he finds out most of the messages to be straightforward military messages, not even coded at all. The blacks then come and they just kind of come into the Nielsen's home and barge their way in looking for them and then go into the backyard to the clubhouse. And then they also find them in the clubhouse. So the same thing that Vic did, you know, went through the blacks go through. Now, Sammy, this is really fascinating because Sammy has this good security culture. He's He really much reminds me of the young man in the story, Foster, You're Dead, in that he kind of grows up entirely in this Cold War environment. Now, all these characters have kind of implanted our false memories here. But Sammy kind of grows up more in the total 1950s environment. This is set in 1959, ostensibly. I mean, that's what we think. We think it's 1959. It's, it's actually in the 1990s. But he's got this really good security culture. He's very much worried about the Reds and he's worried about communists and fascists. So he actually has rules that if you're not a member of the club, you can't get in. So he prevents the blacks from coming inside and even is able to threaten him a little, them a little bit. Now, the blacks pretend that they're just there on a friendly visit and that they want to invite the Nielsen's to go bowling and to come over for dinner. Margo refuses, and then Vic and Margo leave the clubhouse to work on their dinner. And But Ragel and Sammy stay behind to study the messages they're getting from the radio. Vic, however, is very skeptical that Black's arrival at that moment, when they were listening to these strange sounds, was a coincidence. Meanwhile, listening to the radio transmissions in the clubhouse, Ragel talks with Sammy while pondering and wondering if he's going insane or if he's just hallucinating. And he's really coming to believe that he is the center of the universe. And this is really going to be a theme of these chapters is Regal Gum coming to the conclusion that not only is something weird happening to him, but the whole universe seems to be revolving around him and around his experiences and everything kind of comes back to to him. So we get this quote. This is actually, I guess, Regal's internal monologue. He said, yes, he thought, I'm a man who lies around the house scrounging a living by filling out the where will the little ma green man be next puzzles in a newspaper contest, while other adults have jobs, wives, homes of their own. I'm a retarded psychotic, 
Hallucinations. Yes, he thought. Insane, infantile, and lunatic. What am I doing sitting here? Daydreams at best. Fantasies about rocket ships shooting overhead. Armies and conspiracies. Paranoia. A paranoiac psychosis. Imagine that I'm the center of a vast effort by millions of men and women involving billions of dollars in infinite work, a universe revolving around me, every molecule acting me, with, me, with me in mind, an outward radiation of importance to the stars, regal gum, the object of the whole cosmic process from the inception to final entropy, all matter and spirit in order to wheel about me. So that's his pondering this. He, he certainly thinks it's ridiculous to believe this, but he does come to the conclusion that that's the only explanation for what is happening to him and the, the facts he has, he's dug up. Now, just as he's as thinking this, as if to confirm it almost, he hears people talking about him on the radio. In fact, I think they say something like, "Where if you look down, you, you're right over where Regal Gum is. They, they're identifying the very spot he is, which is a very bizarre experience. And this causes Regal Gum to just sort of lose it. And he kind of, you know, freaks out. And he goes to get a cab almost immediately ask, and asks get to go to the Greyhound station. He decides he just needs to get out of town and go somewhere and, and see what's going on and, and kind of push the limits of this world he's in. Now, instead of taking him to the Greyhound station, the driver, the cab driver, takes him to the newspaper office, the Gazette. And he says, well, I thought you wanted to go here. And Regal says, no, I want you to take me to the Greyhound station. And he feigns sort of confusion. He's like, no, I thought I heard you say Gazette. So anyway, then he goes to drive to the Greyhound station. And Regal says, well, no, why don't you just take me out of town? But then the, and I'll pay you extra or something. And then the driver refuses to do this. And they eventually drive through what seems to be a very post-industrial community and drastic decline. And I think this is some of really the fun details that Dick adds here that, that give this book some even contemporary significance. You know, with the rise of suburbia is often coincides with the deindustrialization of American cities and the rise of the Rust Belt and, and all those, the urban crisis. And these things sort of go together. And there's been some good scholarship on how the rise of the suburbs was really connected to the urban crisis. And we get these little snapshots of the urban crisis in, in this book. So how, where is it? Uh, okay, they drove on, quote, they drove on and on. Eventually he lost track of the streets. He had no idea where they were. The nocturnal shapes of closed up factories lay off to the right in what appears to be railroad tracks. Several times a cab bucked and floundered as it passed over tracks. He saw vacant lots in industrial district with no lights showing. Now, Kind of what's happening here is the whoever created this world for Regalgum didn't create it much beyond his neighborhood and the kind of the places he'd go every day. So it's not really programmed farther than that. It's it's like a video game, you know, where you have the strict boundaries of where you can be and there's nothing really beyond it. And here it's just so it's not clear at what point does he really enter the quote unquote real world when he's out of this the simulation. But it seems when we get to these more grimier, grittier, you know, crappier places that it's a sign that we're, we're kind of getting to the place where it's outside of the, what was constructed for Regal Gum himself. Now, he's taken to a bus station, but it's not a Greyhound. It's called Non-Perial Coach Lines. And here's another kind of incongruency between his world and, and, and I guess the real world and that. The 1950s, you had Greyhound. Now, maybe in the future, there's this non-parial coach lines or whatever, but Regal Gum is just confused. And the driver kind of talks his way around it saying, well, 
you know, the government only allows one road coach company to run in each town or something. He gets out and he pays the cab fare fare. And the bus station is odd as well. Everything is in a place, but the lines don't seem to move. And Raggle Gum is trapped in some kind of bureaucratic hell where he he's like doesn't move in the line for like 45 minutes. He's trying to get a bus ticket and he just can't. It's like he's stuck. And this is, you know, kind of how you might feel in a bureaucratic office when you're when you're there for several hours and you don't seem to be making any real progress and you're completely dependent on other people for any progress you hope to make. So he gives up on the line and he talks to someone who looks like they're kind of normal. I guess they 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 look like they're kind of like him, not supposed to be there. And it's a soldier. And he's sitting on one of the benches at the bus station. And Regal Gum offers to offer offers him some help. And he says, I'll help you. Um, and he says, you're the first person who seems really to seem to have a purpose here. Now, the soldier explains to Gum that it's important that he gets back to the base before 8 a.m., because he'll be declared AWOL at that point. And he's with another soldier. I think their names are Wade and Philip, are these two soldiers. And they were basically on a binge and drinking, driving around, and their car broke down. So Regal agrees to help them fix up their car if they will drive out to their, if you will, they'll drive him out to him out to their base. Regal just, of course, wants to get out of town and get an idea of what's happening in the world and what he's now seeing as increasingly the real world. They find a ca- the car and they learn that they need to change a tire. So they go. To, they find out the repair shop is five miles away. A gas station attendant basically lets Regal borrow his pickup truck so he can go and get the tire. And it says, you know, you got to buy me a malt at the nearby diner or, or pub or something. So Regal agrees to do this and he takes the pickup truck and he drives away. So now we get to a very bizarre scene in which we have a young man he's only described as a young man and he's watching these weird recordings and these recordings are actually showing what we've been observing with raggle gum and these two soldiers they show the highway the recordings also seem to teach the young man about the rules of 1950s driving so there'll be like kind of commentary coming from speakers saying you know at this time you need to make hand signals to turn left or whatever now he gets a phone call and the phone call can be answered verbally. So the call comes and he just answers hello and then it connects to whoever's calling him. So this it's there's all this different odd technology. He starts up another tape and here he sees a, the soldier get on a, a the soldier get on a motorcycle. Later he sees a policeman pulling over a car and the young man mimics the conversation of the policeman almost like he's practicing. He then sees other scenes which are revealed to be the surveillance of what has been happening to Regal Gum. And then when this is all done, he gets on a motorcycle and he has to make sure he's dressed up properly like a motorcycle cop from the 1950s, I guess. So he has to have the glasses, the sunglasses and the and the gloves. And he's very anxious and worried about whether he has the right sunglasses. You know, because it's nighttime and he thinks, well, you shouldn't wear sunglasses at nighttime, but all his imagery and all his perspectives on what a 1950s motorcycle cop should look like have sunglasses because apparently he's, you know, I don't, I'm not sure where they get all their imagery from, but maybe from the popular culture that survived. So it's a really kind of fun side scene where we get a kind of a, a sense of how clumsy and awkward and playing it by ear are the conspirators. I, I think this is Dick showing the conspirators as not all powerful gods as you have in the cosmic puppet, but really as a bit of a bit buffoonish. 
Now back to Regal in his point of view. He we he now knows that he's being trailed. Tailed, I should say. And he eventually escapes the tail by using the traffic and there's a long description of how he's able to filter his way through the traffic. And he eventually finds a roadside bar and he looks at it and it's full of people but there's no cars nearby. And this is very strange for Regal to you know, he's like, if there's all these people here, why aren't there more cars? And this just reinforces his idea that there's some kind of deep conspiracy out there trying to undermine him or trying to get him. He says, quote, I know they are conspiring against me. The two soldiers, the attendant plotting against me, the bus depot too, the cab driver, everyone. I can't trust anyone. They send me off in this truck to get picked up by the first highway cop that came cruising by. Probably the back end of the taillights lights up and reads Russian spy, the sort of paranoia kick me he thought yes he thought i'm the man with the kick me sign pinned on me no matter how hard he tries he can't whirl around fast enough to see it but his intuition tells him it's there he watches other people engages their actions he infers from what they do he infers that the sign is there because he sees them lining up to kick him so very much like uh we've seen in in this other parts in this this section of the novel Regal is becoming convinced that not only is there a conspiracy, but he's the center of of some kind of universe that's been constructed. He even stops trusting his family members, and he has some doubts about Vic and Margot as well. And so he, he finally kind of is able to lose the cop, and he drives out into the countryside. And the countryside is totally dark, and he comes to an intersection, he turns, and he follows the road farther, you know, back, you know, somewhere. And the road becomes more and more narrow, and eventually the truck veers off the road, and is busted so he gets out of the truck and he starts to walk on foot and then before long he finds a house he goes to the house and he knocks on the door and the woman comes out and the woman is reminds him immediately of mrs keitelbein the woman who's running this the civil defense course that regal gum was asked to join and she has a son who reminds him instantly of walter keitelbein who's the Mrs. Kyle son, who he helped move some furniture for, you know, the previous day. But these people have a different names, and their name are Kesselman. He tells the Kesselmans that his car broke down and he needs to find a friend, but he doesn't have the friend's number or location, and that's a bit odd. They serve him whiskey, and they seem to want to get him drunk, but they offer to help what they can, and eventually they agree to let him stay there for the night. Regal, though, kind of changes his story a few times during the encounter, but he kind of tries to convince them that he actually had a fight with his wife and he was going out to kill himself, but then he changed his mind at the last minute, and that's why he's in the state he's in. He eventually asks to stay overnight, and they agree, and then they slip, and they call him Mr. Gum. And then he's like, well, how do you know my name's Mr. Gum? And then they say, well, we know you from the newspaper contest, like everyone else, so... I mean, he's gotten this before, so it's not that surprising. He's talked to cab drivers and things who have identified him as, as Mr. Gum. But this, in his point of view, really, again, exposes that he's right, that something is going on here and he's the center of whatever's going on. Now, before going to bed, this, the son mentions how famous they'll be for having saved the great Regal Gum. Now, meanwhile, Bill Black gets a telegram, which basically explains how Regal Gum got away from them. And Junie and Bill bicker a little bit about her, about whose fault it was that Regal Gum got away. But back to the, I guess, the, the Kesselman's house. 
Regal is there. He's preparing to sleep, but he's very cautious. He knows the Kesselmans are in on the conspiracy in some way because they called him by his name. They gave themselves away this in by slipping up here. But there's other strange things too, such as the fact that the house has several radios, something Regal thought was very rare. So, you know, that, that detail from early on that there's no radios in Regal's world is has a payoff at this point, and it helps uh, reveal to him that he's sort of in the, the quote-unquote real world. Regal questions both the Kesselmans, and he gets more kind of violent and aggressive, and he, he questions them about who he is and why he's important. And he believes that the contest must be much more than just a newspaper contest, but he has no idea, he has no way of knowing what it could be. Without much success, though, he eventually locks them into a closet, takes the key, and starts to look around the house. He, he searches around, and the thing he finds that is, is a big clue is he finds the same phone book that he had found discarded earlier, the one he found in the junkyard. And it has very similar numbers and extensions. So this is a kind of proof that there's some continuity between the world he's in and the, and the junk he found before. So he goes back to the closet and he tries, He opens it and they're actually talking to him, but he opens, he unlocks it and then he finds that the customers have escaped. In basically just a few minutes, they have drilled a hole through the back wall. And then Regal thinks, well, these must be like special agents or something or, or spies or someone in on it. That these weren't just normal folk because they wouldn't have been able to, they wouldn't have been equipped to break through that quickly out of the back wall of a closet. But they're gone. They're in the, they're in the wind. So he decides to spend his time to look around more rather than fleeing. He plays some recordings and he finds that all the recordings are about him. And again, he concludes he must be at the center of the universe. He searches a newspaper and finds that the date on it is 1997. And he also finds newspaper reports about land disputes on Venus. Meanwhile, magazines not only confirm the date, 97, 98 or so, but one magazine has Regal gum listed as Time's Man of the Year. And just as he sees this, he is ambushed and put to sleep with some kind of chemical and then thrown into the back of the truck. Of a, a truck. And so that does it for the the third part. Now, these aren't official parts, obviously. I'm just kind of taking in a few chapters at a time. But that does it for, for this third episode, this third part of my review of Time Out of Joint, covering chapter seven through nine, if you're reading along or following along. The focus of these chapters really are about Raggle Gum's realization that he really is the center of the universe. And it starts out as a suspicion and just a feeling and an anxiety. And by the end of chapter nine, it's revealed that, yes, there's concrete evidence that he's the center of the universe. I mean, he's time man, he's time's man of the year. Now, he's also the also center of this is his attempt to try to break free of what he's become convinced is is a false reality. He fails in this effort, but he learns very much. And he he learns that this entire not only is the world he lives in false and fake and he doesn't believe it anymore. So from this point on in the novel, even when he wakes up again and it's still 1959, he doesn't believe it anymore and he's doubtful of it and he knows there's something else going on outside. So this is a big breakthrough for him. But he's the biggest thing is that his realization that's all about him, that the conspiracy is all about him. And if you remember back to Eye in the Sky, you had the Joan Reese's delusion. And so Joan Reese was one of the mental realms, the characters in Eye, Eye, 
eye in the sky went through. And that was the paranoiac view. And of course, Regal often refers to himself as a paranoiac in this part of the story as well. And what was special about Joan Reese's world in Eye in the Sky was that everything happened to someone for a reason, for a purpose. Everything was a conspiracy. And that's it's a very similar idea here in Regal Gum's interpretation of, of his world and what Joan Reese's was. In fact, it's more well-developed here. And in many ways, especially this part of the novel, is a deeper examination of what Dick was trying to explore, I think, in that that one and a half chapters of about Joan Reese in, in Eye in the Sky. What's actually going on, though, we still don't know. All we really know is that Raggle Gum has been placed in the, some kind of zoo. And he doesn't know why. He doesn't know what for what purpose. But that's, you know, that's what we know. Uh, what's actually going on is something we're going to have to wait to find out in the next episode but i don't even think in the next episode is revealed it's really going to be the, the fifth and final episode of this review we'll finally get to the answers of what's what regal gum's purpose is but anyways thanks so much for listening to this episode of the philip k dick book club if you have any of your own comments about this novel or this part of the novel please leave them uh down below on right here or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and but if not i'll be back shortly with part four of my review of time out of joint